Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the podcast of So Very Wrong About Games. This is a podcast about board games, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? On this podcast... You never answer me. How are you, Walker? I'm pretty good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Getting through it. You were saying. In this episode, we're going to talk about the games we played this week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game, Fayum. Mark, what did you play this week? played Aquatica again. Aquatica is of the genre of games that I think needs its own term, and this is actually going to be relevant later because Fayum is a game in this category. The first game of this type that I ever played was Concordia. There's also other games like Lewis and Clark and indeed Fayum and, and Aquatica. This is where you're kind of sort of deck building, but you don't really shuffle a hand, so I'm going to, I'm going to call it hand building. I looked it up. There are no official classificatory schemes elsewhere on BoardGameGeek for this kind of thing. There's no accepted term. I don't know if you've heard of one or if you have a preferred term for this kind of game. I was also thinking that I was either thinking hand management or deck building. Hand management, though, is, is yeah, means something else. Like hand it management does. refers to or any... deck management. I guess, but the deck is always in your... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to say hand building. Because it is deck building, you're right. But it never gets shuffled into a deck. It's always in your hand, hence hand building. That, If we come up with a better term, we'll use the better term. Anyway, so it's a hand building game where your entire deck is in your hand. You play a card, you do what it says it does, and you have a card that you play that says take all your cards back. And I've been enjoying Aquatica more and more. It's really about leveraging a series of combos. And you leverage the combos not through the cards in your hand, because the cards actually are very, very simple in nature. It's about leveraging these other actions that you have aside from that, either from little adorable plastic mantas you have off to the side, or these locations that you've conquered, where you have to trigger the bonuses in order to be able to score the locations later, and you do end up with those very, very satisfying turns that you find in lots of other games, lots of other deck-building games, for example, where A triggers B, which triggers C, which allows you to do D, and then suddenly you're scoring a whole bunch of points. But unlike in deck-building games... Since this is about managing effects on your tableau of conquered locations, you don't have to worry about the vicissitudes of what card set you happen to draw in a given turn. And even though we joked about our early playings of Aquatica being so incredibly lightning fast because I was either playing solo or we were playing the basic game, I think this was one of those cases where... We talked about putting your best foot forward previously, about what ways to introduce games to people in terms of scenarios. I don't think that anyone should ever play Aquatica in the base game, ever. I don't. Th- I think it was, a, it was definitely a mistake to introduce you to it in that format, and I don't think that anybody who's capable of playing Aquatica should ever really play that version, because it's too quick, it is not satisfying, you're not really going to get anywhere. I'll just stay, sitting here thinking there's going to be quite a few similarities between Fayum and Aquatica. Sure, they are awfully similar games, but... 
Aquatica was very enjoyable. It remains very enjoyable. I'm looking forward to trying the expansion because this is one of those games where I think the, the, the core fundamentals are really good. But the lack of variety in the card set is potentially a problem. I've now played Aquatica about half a dozen times, and I'm really feeling like I want to see more cards. Now, is this a case of throwing good money after bad or rewarding a publisher for releasing a game that didn't have quite enough variety? I don't know. But then again, I am a sucker. I'm a sucker for you, the dear listeners. I couldn't help but notice that your least favorite board game retailer, namely BoardGameGeek, is going to be stocking the Aquatica expansion very shortly. And it does seem to be very economical, so I do think I will try to track down the expansion of Aquatica and see if it gives it the necessary legs. Although legs might be too a speciesist a term for a game mostly about mantas. I was about to say, that's very hurtful. It's very, uh, sorry, uh, you know, to all the mer people that are listening, I'd like to apologize uh, for using that particular turn of phrase. So that was Aquatica. Further plays are, again, still enjoyable. Love the combos. I introduced it to a couple of new people who also thoroughly enjoyed it. It's got a very accessible, appeal, uh, appealing nature. But again, I just want to see if a little more card variety can really keep it in the rotation regularly. Well, it's got that slidey card bit, and that is the cool part. We're sliding the cities, and, and you get to slide them under the board as you use the abilities. Yeah, it's got these these two this double layer player board, and you slide the conquered locations in between the two layers, and you keep sliding them up until they're fully conquered. It's a very tactile appeal when you're doing so, and I really do like the plastic mantas. Those the plastic mantas are just really cool. <laughs> so that's Aquatica. Speaking of cool animals, I got to play Dungeon Pets the first time. This has got you know mild buzz for the whole. You know, it's kept its you know buzz this whole time like i keep hearing about people playing it and enjoying it well vladik Vatel doesn't really release a whole lot of games it's true and so they tend to have a bit of staying power and it's put out by czech games edition cge games and if there was a, ever a pokemon board game i think this would be it i only got to play it once so i didn't get a full <laughs> feel of you know how great it is but that's pretty well what you're doing. You're collecting these cute little adorable monsters and you're feeding them and keeping them and they get better and you sell them off and you get points and money and you got to make sure you get enough food and do all sorts of other stuff. There's all sorts of different ways you can play this game. So I'm looking, looking forward to trying all the different paths to victory. I can't remember. What's your opinion on Dungeon Lords? Love it. Okay. Really like Dungeon Not Lords. that they're similar games, really. They're only similar in that they have the same designer, and they're both the most straightforward Euro management games that Vladik Vatel released. Because his other stuff is usually delightfully weird. Galaxy Trucker, of course, is a tile layer, but it's also a real-time tile layer where there's lots of destruction. Space Alert is very much its own kind of sui generis thing. Mage Knight is this cobbled together monstrosity that somehow works but both Dungeon Lords and Dungeon Pets are his most straightforward Euro management type things and that's one of the reasons honestly why they didn't really stick around in my collection. I don't have anything against them but they didn't quite reach the level of say a a Mind Clash game. To my mind they're very much in the same kind of category as say an Anachrony or something like that. You know a a sprawling lots of different mechanisms somewhat in-depth kind of thing that is probably going to last in excess of two hours, but hopefully you want to keep it less than two and a half hours. That you didn't kind of say deal. Space Alert in that, Mark. I didn't say... No, Space Alert is not in that category. I was talking specifically <laughs> about Dungeon Lords and Dungeon Pets. I know, but no, you're talking about other Vital Survival games. So, yeah. So, and you have to say Space Alert when... I mentioned Space Alert. No, I don't think you did. I, because they both have fantastic rule books. I know I didn't hear Space Alert. I'm only saying it. I know you don't listen to the podcast, Walker, but normally it would be nice if you would be listening while we are recording well, you the were podcast. Tell, saying a bunch of other games, I didn't hear Space Alert. There are all these the words, list. and I kind of lost track. Yeah, the uh, story, this, story of our relationship. All this crazy stuff. Anyway, if even if you don't play these games, read the rule books for both Space Alert and Dungeon Lords. They are a novel in on themselves. And this is also on uh, Board Game Arena. Check it out. Dungeon Pets. Check it out. Is that a pun? I played Concordia Solitaria on the topic of hand-building games. Solitaria is the upcoming expansion that will allow you to play Concordia Solitaire. This is a playtest deck that was sent to, to us by Matt Gertz at PD Verlag. So full disclosure, this is not the final version. This is kind of sort of in uh, late-stage playtesting. And I've spoken before that when it comes to solitaire versions, there are two aspects that I like very much to see in a solitaire adaptation of an existing board game. One of them is that it is simple to execute. No 20-page rulebook, 
written typically by David Tsurtse, explaining a whole set of rule subsystems and complicated pathing arrangements. In that sense, Concordia Solitaria is an absolute triumph. The way that it works in Concordia Solitaria is it replaces all the cards of the base game, and you play a card, you do the action corresponding to it, and then right below there is the action that the AI is going to perform. And a helpful little reference to help you determine what to do. Yes, it still builds lots of houses, and in normal circumstances, that might be the kind of thorny rules issues that make things cumbersome, but in Concordia Solitaria, it's very, very, very simple. Just build into a new province if you can. This is the kind of city it wants to build into. Prefer cities you're not already in. There you go. I spent precious few seconds even determining how the AI was going to run itself. The second issue, and it's early plays yet, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that this is going to get better. The second thing that I want a Solitaire version of a Euro to do is I want it to feel like the base game. To a large extent, Solitaria still succeeds because in Concordia, not everything you do has strong player interaction elements. A lot of it is just about someone else got there first, that makes it expensive for me, or someone bought that card that I wanted, and in that sense, the Solitaria bot works exactly as you would expect. The problem is, one of the cool bits of player interaction that I quite like about Concordia, and this may just be personal, is I like trying to figure out how to maximize my opponent's production actions. Trying to build in such a way that when my opponent produces, I am able to get something out of it, and or when I produce, they get as little out of it as possible. And there, Solitaria was a bit of a disappointment, because the Solitaire bot, by necessity, builds very quickly. And it builds very quickly in precisely a way so as to not share places with you. And then when it produces, it never wants to produce where you are. So as a result, in the context of my early playings of Concordia Solitaria, there were zero produce actions that my opponent did that, that gave me any resources. Which sometimes might happen in a multiplayer game of Concordia, sure. But in that sense, it was a little bit different. But, again, if you're a huge fan of Concordia, and I know there are tons of you out there, Concordia is massively popular, this is a fabulous solitaire variant. One of the things that's really good about it is that it is compatible with all released maps and all released expansion modules, with the exception of Venus. You can't do team play in this particular version, but then again, we don't really like Venus. So you can do it, use it with Salsa, you can use it with the Balearis Islands, you can use it with the Fish, you can use it with the Egypt map. It's all there and incredibly straightforward and simple. So I have to say that this is an admirable work of uh, quote-unquote AI development in Concordia. I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't feel quite as dynamic as the normal game. But I will try it some more, see how things develop, and see if the final product continues to evolve. And so that's an early experience with a playtest version of Concordia Solitaria. So I have a large block of... Uh, board game arena stuff here because I've been playing a lot of games on there and I've never talked about any of them because they're just so minor and some of them <laughs> just because I don't play a lot of uh, live action games it's all turn based so I'm just going to talk about why some of these games work turn based and some of them why I've never played them again one's called Q Birds it's this very interesting uh, sort of a card laying game where you have these rows of birds and you have to play them sort of like um, Mahjong style where you put birds on the outside and you get all of the like birds in the middle. Now the difference with this is, is when you play a bird on the outside, you have to play all of the birds of that type you have in your hand. So you got to sort of weigh what you're going to give your opponents and what you're going to get in return. And, and certain groups of birds are worth certain points. So that's Q birds would not play that turn based again. I'm sure it might play all right in person, but it's very light. The other one is Dragonwood. Someone had told me that Dragon was a fun game. I'm going to have to unfriend that person. <laughs> in Dragonwood, you're just sort of like getting poker hands of adventurers, right? You're either looking for a run or three of a kind or or colors, and then these monsters are laid out on the top, and, and they all have different stats on, on those three things, right? And so you're sort of trying to group up your cards, and then you get to roll dice, depending on how many you have in that particular color, run, or number set. So you're making poker hands and then rolling dice on the back of this? Yeah, so like say if I had... Sounds like everything you hate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if you had like four orange cards, that will let you, you know, roll four dice. Or if you had a run of four, then you'd get to roll four. Depending on how many were in your little set, you, okay. you know, that's how many dice you'd roll. So you had to look on the card and say, well... You know, well, it's weak in that particular stat, so maybe I can get away with only three, and then you sort of just sort of make those judgment calls and try to get more monsters killed than the other person. It's bizarre. Other than battle line slash shot and totten, I've never found forming poker hands to resolve things remotely compelling. Yes, this this is an odd game. Would not play again. And then lastly, 
that uh, on games, Abyss, I talked about Abyss. I'm sure it's great in person. This is a terrible game doing turn-based just because there's <laughs> so much bidding, right? Because it was your turn. You're either putting out uh, a big commander, which is fine, or you're putting up cards for auction. I see. So you flip up a card, and that's you don't get to bid on it first, so you got to wait for everybody else to decide. Luckily, there is a little sort of like a layout on the bottom where everyone can put like a minimum bid, so at least it'll go to that point, but then you're still waiting for everyone to bid on the card and then deciding whether or not you can get it at the end. And lastly, there are some fantastic games that just started out. Davalier we've talked about. It is in beta, so it's available to everyone right now. How's yeah. the implementation? Really good. Good. And it and it's it's sort of the game that I think really works well turn based because you just set all your prices, and then and then you wait until it comes back. And then when it comes back to your turn again, you can quickly see that you know whether you want when it's your turn to pick a card, what cards you need, and then you just grab it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it doesn't take you long to get back up to speed if you've got like. Right. 12 games going. A lot of times you're going, okay, now where was I in this game? And try to figure out where you are. And if you're playing asynchronous, I can see that the tempo would be very important, right? Because there is that pause when everyone is setting out all their initial semi-blind bids. The drafting then, if people take too long to just draft the, their their card or what have you, that could cause the game to stall. But so long as playing, people are playing briskly there, I could see, as you say, it working asynchronously very well. It's not too bad. And then two games that are in alpha... That I can't wait. I've been, I'm playing them now, but they're both fantastic. We've talked about them before. Beyond the Sun, the implementation is fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to that hitting beta. They don't let, they don't let me near the alpha games. They don't trust me. And I've always been a beta male anyway. So and uh, the Lost Ruins of Arnak is also an alpha, and it looks fantastic. It's not the greatest of games, but it's pretty neat. We shouldn't be shilling for Asmodee properties anymore, but uh, it's true. I hear I hear rumors that the big is an alpha. The big. The big, El Grande. Ooh. When El Grande hits Board Game Arena, I'm looking forward to that. That is something I'm really looking forward to. And then if you're asking, well, Mike, how can we play Alpha Games? My answer would be, get good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the unofficial slogan of this podcast. So very wrong about games. Get good, noob. (laughs) And that is my short segment on Board Game Arena. Got to play Bullet. We got a review copy of Bullet from Level 99 Games. I just got it this afternoon, so I put it through its paces solo. This is one of those cases where I am hopeful that the in-person adaptation really serves to make it shine. Because the solo modes, of which there are a couple, none of them are timed. And initially I might think, well, you know, it's, it's kind of puzzly. Maybe the time would induce stress. To which my answer is, absolutely. That's what I wanted to do. Because I was reflecting on the last time I felt like, oh, well, you know, this, this, is, this is functional and it seems fine, but I really hope that the real-time element can really elevate it. Because the last time I felt that way was when playing Pendulum. Because Pendulum by Stonemeyer is a nightmarishly mediocre game, aggressively mediocre and pointless, that I enjoy precisely because and only because it is real-time. I, I like Pendulum, I think, f- uh, more than anyone else in our immediate group, and I seem to like it a little bit more than the rest of, of uh, popular opinion would have you believe. I think it's weird. All the games that Stonemeyer makes that people love other than Scythe, I think, are, are pretty awful, but Pendulum thought was okay. So we're, I'm very curious to see how we're going to react to Red Rising when it, whenever we get our copy in. But anyway, Bullet from Level 99 Games is ostensibly themed around shoot-em-up games, although, honestly, the theming is not very prevalent. It is about arranging cascading bullets that are coming in at you in specific patterns to clear them. So in the case of the boss battle, sending them back at the boss. In the case of the score attack mode, just sending them off your board. Or in the case of the competitive version, sending them to your friends. And that's the one that I want to try in person. The production is very nice. And it is vaguely pleasing to arrange the bullets in ways that are spatially advantageous using a minimum of action points because you have this menu of available actions you can perform. And that's where a lot of the character asymmetry comes in. And that part is all very cool. But again, when there's not the time pressure, I, it does, just doesn't grab me to the extent that I would want it to. So it's fine. It, it, it's, it's perfectly pleasant and functional. But I want it to be tense. I want it to be more engaging. And that is often what real time can do to you. So uh, part of me is, is wondering whether the next time I play the boss battle, for example, maybe I do just want to set a timer for myself, even though the rules tell me not to. Because you know what? The, that rule book is not the boss of me. That's right. I am the boss of me, Walker. Yeah, you, you do you, man. Yeah, thanks. Uh, th- you know what, Walker? Let's give me the courage. Next time I play the, bo- the boss battle version of Bullet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on that timer. 
I'm going to set that timer. Speaking of timers, we streamed uh, Project Elite. And even though the first game didn't do go so great, <laughs> the second game went, went much, much better. So this is on our normal streaming that we do every Saturday. Uh, we played Project Elite. It never fails to be a joy for me. Well, I much preferred it this way because, again, the last time we played, we both had Rook Team members. And so we had four Swarm spawns every round. And as I commented during the stream, my least favorite part of Project Elite is figuring out the conga line of aliens as, you know, the first spawn sets up and then activates, and then the second and third spawns push various other elements of the spawns, you know, following these arrows. And that's, you know, I, I, I've i talked about how in, in a lot of games where you're moving a lot of plastic around, I don't really feel the tedium, for example, like Rum and Bones, but that's because you've got six figures that are moving from one big square to another big square but when i've got 12 runners that are all set up in a line and i have to figure out how to arrange them and that only happened once or twice in our more reasonable game project elite so that was that was more satisfying and next saturday at 10 30 we're going to be streaming root so come and check that out if you enjoy root and we'll, we're going to have a special limited time coupon offer right, for right. some root swag yeah, if you like your your add-on root stuff, come check it out. For those who watch, we'll get a cool discount code. And Mark and I got to uh, play Underworlds again. I'm only bringing it up because I just I had just Warhammer had this, Underworlds. Warhammer Underworlds. I just had this thought. I wonder if Mark agreed. It's sort of like a magic analogy, right? So when these sort of collectible games. Uh, sort of evolve, they start to get these keywords and they start to build more rules and they want to keep their current base engaged by, uh, you know, putting out more stuff. But do you feel as though that closes doors on new people trying to get in? Like right now, I wouldn't even think of, of getting into magic, you know, with all the extra rules. Like, do you remember uh, Antiquities and, uh, you know, Arabian Nights? That's, that, that's, you know, when I played, I wouldn't even want to think about all the extra rules that are in there now. How old are you? Yeah, I'm old as dirt. Um, when I started playing magic, there was only whispers of the old days of Arabian <laughs> So. So do you feel, do you think that is across these collectible type genres? or is ha, that... have, have you heard me talking about my misgivings about Warhammer Underworlds over all these past weeks? Well, that's what, it, that's what, that's yeah. what sort of, yeah. Is... I don't know what it's like for a new player, honestly. Maybe it's better because at least now they've kind of internalized some of these rule structures like hybrid victory cards and burst cards and things like that. I just remember a simpler time, a more bucolic time. I, look, I I still love the core systems of Warhammer Underworlds. It's really, really good. The tension, uh, the, the activation tension and the different kinds of activations and the trade-offs involved in the different kinds of victory conditions you might be pursuing at any given time. But again, we had a setup that I think really served to highlight the structural failings of the Underworld system that have been there since the beginning. Again, the high consequence, low volume of dice rolls. You had a warband with only three figures in it, and you just could not afford to lose combats, either when you were initiating them or when they were being initiated against you. I, on the other hand, had a swarm of six peons. I was more than happy to take some casualties. Fine, wade through some corpses. It doesn't matter to me. And that's one of the reasons why I'm attracted to those kinds of warbands, because I feel like it... Loosen, it gives you a certain looseness that the core system doesn't. And so many of the warbands, especially recently, have been of three figures or slightly four figures. Yes. I really feel like if you're going to want to have anything remotely approaching the margin for error that these kinds of swingy dice results can give you in Warhammer Underworlds, you want at least five people and or four very beefy people that can afford to take wounds. You had three relatively fragile f fighters. I don't think that's a good way to play, and I, I don't appreciate the fact that so many of the recent warbands have been in, in that mode. It's true. And that's why, I'm, that's why I have a little note here to make sure, like, if you ever, we talk about Warhammer Underworlds, if you ever, I definitely want you try it before you buy it. It's one of these things where the dice really matter. If you don't like any sort of luck dice rolls, then this is not the game for you. I will say, though, that at least in this playing, we did see the value in support. Support was consequential in at least two different high-consequence combats. That is not to say that it overcomes the randomness in the small volume of dice throws. But it's at least helpful. It makes you feel clever, like you did something, and you accomplished something, you mitigated the dice properly, because it's the only way to mitigate the dice. Reroll abilities are vanishingly rare in the game, which is probably for the good most of, most of the time. Yeah, true. A lot of our other games was more like, you know, did I roll crit? Yes, did I not roll? You know, it was like crits back and forth, and this time there was actual dice rolls going on. Yes. 
And so that was Warhammer Underworld's Dire Chasm. Walker played with the Nurgle group, who are called the Worm Spat. I hate Games Workshop naming titles. <laughs> I'm sure they have a computer generator. No, they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just hit the button. Yeah, yeah. Walker and I tried a game called The Shores of Tripoli. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher, designed by Kevin Bertram at Fort Circle Games. This is a game about the first Barbary War that happened right around the turn of the 19th century. Uh, a conflict with which I'm not very familiar, although I, I will point out that this is where the line from the Song of the Marines comes in. The line is, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, which I will point out, therefore, Fort Circle Games is operating in reverse chronological order, because later on they will be publishing a game called The Halls of Montezuma. You can't go from the shores of Tripoli to the halls of Montezuma. That's not the direction. It's the other way. Get it right, guys. Jeez. Someone dropped the ball in research there, i got to say. It's embarrassing. So I, was, I haven't played a lot of Twilight Struggle, but I was wondering if this is a merger of, of uh, Twilight Struggle and Quartermaster General, sort of a light. You know, you sort of like merge these together and get a light version because it was the same sort of like card play and, and very light back and forth of, you know, the two systems. Well, yes, it's a card-driven war game. Yes. And card-driven war games have been de rigueur for at least 20 years now. And yeah, Twilight Struggle being one of the the, the most famous, but it's operating on, on, on very well-established formula. You don't have an ops versus event tension here. What you have instead is, and this part I think was really, really well done, a very simple tension between you either play the card for the event or here is a list of two things that your faction can do with the discarded cards. And we didn't really have any difficulty remembering what to do with them. And so there's not this menu of things you do with ops, which is fine for a, for, for a denser card-driven game. That's fine. If you're going to play Successors, if you're going to play Twilight Struggle, by all means, give me a list of four or five different things that I can do with my ops points. But the cards here really did take center stage in the way that they were intended to. And it further allowed you to do the thing that you're supposed to do in a card-driven war game, or at least it's traditionally done in a card-driven war game. You offload both the historicity and the rules complexity onto the cards as much as possible. So, for example, one of the victor conditions for one of the sides in the Shores of Tripoli is be able to play this card. And there's just a list of requirements on the card. Historical war games love victory condition along the lines of, well, conquer this city and then make sure that there are no enemy forces in the following two regions after this turn, after you've activated this event. And when I first saw it, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is very traditional wargamey type of stuff. But it's like, oh, this is very simple. And it's on the card. Great. No problem. And so that part was, was very nice. It also served to internalize the rules pressures of forcing a relatively historical ending, which is also very common in historical wargames. So in the shores of Tripoli, most of the American victory conditions... It's the Americans versus the Tripolitanians, essentially. The American victory conditions, you can't get going before 1804. So in other words, round four of a possible six-round game. I don't know how I feel about that. I appreciate the fact that it's not done overly artificially. It's all built into the cards. You can't play this card before 1804. And yeah, you can hold it in your hand at very little cost. Because you only play a few uh, four-ish cards around, and you've got a six-card hand, so you know, just stick it in the back, hold on to it for when you need it. That part was fine. I wonder how much the game is going to feel like it's on rails in future rounds, because your first three or four turns, you're basically treading water. It's enjoyable. You've got tensions. You, you as the Americans, want to patrol to make sure you're, you're not vulnerable to piracy. The Tripolitanians want to pick their battles, because, of course, they're weaker. You've got that lovely sense of asymmetry. There's a lot of things that are really well done in the shores of Tripoli. I just wonder how scripted it feels after repeated plays. I, however, am keen to find out. I, I, I don't think it'll be too bad. I think the card mix will work it out. And I think both our cases we got, there was, I think there was only one uh, each that we had a combo of two cards that worked together. And I think we both got them together at the same time. But I think in other games where those would be spaced apart or like you said, that one key card that you needed, you'd have to think about when you got it because you're going to cycle through your cards at least once. And you could just play it for whatever and then get it back in that end game when you need it. And the fact that there's those three cards out, like your key, there you have three key cards in the game and they put you let you get to keep them out and use them whenever you want. I thought that was a very nice touch as well. Yeah, that also really helped to increase the flexibility. I, I wish the game was a little bit more flexible in that sense. And there were some lovely little trade-offs in some of the events. One of the goals of the triple, one of the possible victory conditions of the Tripolitanians is to acquire a certain amount of plunder such that the Americans decide that this war is too expensive and leave. We made a couple of jokes about how American geopolitics appears not to have changed very much in two centuries of foreign war. 
but there, there were some event cards that I could play where I would just have to hand you a whole bunch of treasure, namely a sixth of your victory condition, to pay off one of your allies so they could go leave. And those bits were lovely. And there were lovely little bits of, of drama and tension in a 60-minute game. You get all of this in about 60 minutes. And I just have to note, especially for a first-time publisher, the game was gorgeous. The cards were absolutely lovely. The board was nice and extremely functional. And the wooden pieces were great. It was almost at the level of Pax Premier 2nd Edition in terms of this is a historical design that is seeking to really use a very determinate graphic design to make things extremely functional and extremely visually pleasing. And so I'm very much looking forward to what Fort Circle Games is going to be putting out in the future. There's the aforementioned Halls of Montezuma. They're also the publisher. I talked about this a few months ago that's going to be putting out first Monday in October. And if you, like me, are riveted to the recent news about the upcoming pleadings about the Fifth Amendment's takings clause, apparently there's going to be a Someone's claiming that it's a per se taking to have labor. I have my VCR organs. set already. Yeah, no, of course. But I'm I'm super looking forward to first Monday in October, and I'm looking forward to trying the Shores of Tripoli solo because there's a solo version, and I want to play it again. Again, I, I I'm a bit concerned that it might play out a little scripted, but for a 60 minute game with lots of fun trade offs, I think that that's yeah. not a great damning. I only had one problem with the wording of the cards. You didn't have a problem, but a lot of war games use the word active. That was on me. That's my fault. I know, but I'm just saying a lot of other war games use it. And you, like when a when an allied is active or when something is active, and usually you have to build something to a level that it's active or play a card to activate them. In this case, all it's saying is that you have to have a card that says you can do something with them, and that means they're active. So it was just a little. It was a little on my part. I just couldn't get it in my head immediately that that's all it needed, right? It's and, explained in the component list of the rulebook. It is clearly identified what active is. There, there, a glossary might have been nice, but that that was a rules explainer problem, not a not necessarily a game problem. I just don't even know why they they even need it because you can't activate them unless you have the card. So why do they even need to word it that way? And it's anyway. rele- it's it's relevant for some American victory conditions, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, so that was the shores of Tripoli. I was a big fan. And lastly, for me, we played Your Your Penguin. And the only, we say this too many times, fantastic game. It's not gravity, uh, sorry, not gravity defying, I defy gravity. <laughs> and sure enough, halfway through the game, I looked around at the hand sizes, looked at Sidewinder's hand, your hand, figured, yep, I can't win this game. And you know why? Because Walker played the draw two cards card. Such is the way of the had penguin. A great, had a great time, though. <laughs> I think it was the highest we ever got, the Pillar of Ice. Yes, there were many penguins, and the game ended shortly after the polar bear made its appearance. But it, the iceberg got very, very tall. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So we just finished talking a little bit about historical war games. One branch of historical war gaming that is very popular, but I've never really been a big fan of, are the coin games or the counterinsurgency games by GMT. There have been a couple of riffs on the coin formula in a slightly more Euro vein, some very successful, some less successful. Uh, one of them that I thought was kind of good but didn't really grab me was the Expanse game by Jeff Engelston, which was vaguely coiny. Then, of course, there is Root, which is extremely coiny and I think a, a great triumph. But one of the things that these games don't have are transforming robots or love triangles. These are things that I think that any game really ought to have, if at all possible, which is why I'm really excited for Robotech Reconstruction, which takes place after the end of the of Space War One. Second, let me get my popcorn. Okay. Oh, wait. Walker, right. I will right. point Go out. Ahead. I'll just point out, Walker, the last Robotech game we played, which was Attack on the SDF-1, you were super intrigued. It was very much like playing Steven Universe with you because when I start talking about these media properties that I'm, that I'm enthralled with, you start rolling your eyes and making fun of me and calling me nerd and giving me swirly and atomic wedgies and talking about high school and making passes at my significant other and all those things. And it's very traumatic and my therapist and I talk about it at length. But then when we actually play the board game adaptations of these things, you're suddenly intrigued by these plot beats and these detail elements. So just keep that in mind. Anyway, so Robotech Reconstruction is about the end of Space War One. That's what they call it a Macross. I can't remember what they call it in Robotech if they call it something different. I will, of course, immediately retheme it to Macross instead of Robotech, which is about the uneasy peace in the immediate aftermath of the armistice. And it looks kind of coiny. You've got four asymmetric factions with radically different political aims. And it maps on roughly to not explicit organizations or alliances, but 
perhaps interesting tensions. I'm fascinated. I'm very intrigued about how they're going to play off the conflicts between the RDF and the REF, the Defense Force and Expeditionary Forces, respectively. Anyway, Robotech Reconstruction. I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes. Some Games Workshop news. Necromunda is getting a new box set called Hive War. It's going to have the Delac and Escher, which just happens to be my two favorite gangs. And the terrain looks much better. And it'll have an updated rulebook. I don't remember what put me off the first Necromunda box set, but there was something. This one just looks more welcoming and more up my lane. <laughs> more welcoming, a, a slightly sunnier vision of the underhive. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe it was like the, just like so much plastic terrain. This seems more, you know, you know, boxy, like old school bulkhead type, old school Necromunda. I see. And we already talked about Underworlds. I keep saying I'm not going to buy any more <laughs> factions, but they keep showing me pictures of these new Dire Chasm Warbands. They just keep looking cooler and cooler. Yeah, you sent me a link to one of them. This one has skulls. Yes. Totally, giant, totally different. Giant skeletal death knight. This is the one with skulls. That's right. With okay. skulls on top. Oh, Games Workshop. Never change. Never. There's going to be another expansion for Res Arcana, the ultra-minimalistic, incredibly quick tableau builder from Thomas Lehman. It's going to be called Perle Imperii. My Latin's a bit rusty, so I apologize for any mispronunciation. But then again, I'm sorry, not sorry, because I don't care. And I, for one, am definitely in for more cards. The great thing about Res Arcana is a single new card can represent a change of up to an eighth of your deck, because your deck consists of eight cards. So I'm looking forward to that from Res Arcana. Gen Con. They said they're going to go in August, but they've moved it to September, and they're going to have a capped attendance. I'm sure that will that will be perfect and, and run perfectly smoothly and have no problems, and no one will complain, and everyone will be happy. <laughs> well, it's tricky because I, I was thinking about this. If you could be assured that you were only going to have Americans, that strikes me as reasonably safe because the American inoculation campaign is going great. Moment you start getting people from the rest of the world, though, that aren't from, say, Israel or the UK. Eh. So we'll see. It's not till September, so maybe uh, our dog sleds will show up with our our uh, our vaccines. Our who, vaccines. Who we'll see. So Lost Cities, the perennial game from Reiner Knizia, which has seen a number of different incarnations, including I think a very successful board game adaptation, which. I'm, I'm quite a fan, actually, of a lot of the spin-offs of the, the fundamental Celtus game. There was Celtus the Oracle, Celtus New Ways, New Paths. I think both of those are really, really, really solid middleweight Euro games, uh, which unfortunately were not released in English. But the Lost Cities board game, I think, is pretty good. Celtus Dance-Off? No? No. Oh, sorry. I must have... I thought I saw that. My bad. Now there's going to be Lost Cities Roll and Write, and... Uh, I want Roland Wrights to go die in a fire, Walker. I'm, I'm, sick, I'm just sick to death of them. I, I wish just, they would. Don't play Welcome to. <laughs> Good news from France. The Festival International Le Jeu has awarded the Game of the Year, the Adar. The Golden Award has gone to Micro Macro Crime City, which is well-deserved because Micro Macro Crime City is awesome. And it also allows us to finally settle the issue. Is it a game? Well, of course it is, because it was awarded. It was given an award by the International Games Festival in France. So there we go. It, it put a stamp on it. It has to be a game. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Fam. Fam was designed by Friedman Fries, Friedman. published by 2F Spiel last year. Friedman Fries is honestly, of all the currently working Euro designers, probably the one I respect the most and talk about the least on this podcast. He is consistently fascinating and does some really innovative work some of which I even want to play. Friedman Fries is probably best known for his 2004 release Power Grid, which was in turn a redevelopment of Funkenschlag, which was not released in English. But if you just look at a, a, a list of his greatest hits, or at least some of uh, his favorite games of mine, they span a long time, a lot of different genres, and a lot of solid quality. We've got some more puzzly stuff, like his uh, 2003 release Fearsome Floors. He's got his economic game, like 2004 Power Grid. He did a very solid solo game way before solo games were cool in 2011 with Friday. He did Derivative in a whole new way with 2012's Copycat. Copycat is what was one of the very early games to merge deck building with worker placement. So take that Lost Cities of Arnak and Dune Imperium. And to my mind, did it a lot better. 
He had his sort of toolkit of mediocre Eurogame generation called 504 in 2015, which to me is sort of the epitome of projects I admire and respect but don't want to play. Because I don't want to play mediocre Euros, but I'm impressed at how many mediocre Euros 504 will churn out. 2016, though, was really sort of a turning point in Friedman Fries's career when he released Fabled Fruit, because he kind of looked at the market and he said, Legacy's kind of cool, but wouldn't it be neater if we could do some of those same ideas that both A, had some evolution within the context of a single playing, and B, didn't burden you with a broader campaign structure? And he released a very, very simple game to sort of toy with this in Fabled Fruit, and these ideas introduced in that game have, have been percolating through a whole bunch of other releases. In 2017, for example, he released his Fast Forward series, uh, consisting of Fortress, Fear, Flea, and Fortune. Uh, yes, he, he likes the letter F. I, I We should have acknowledged this right from the beginning. And I have to say that uh, Fast Forward Fortress was, is one of the best two hours of Eurogaming I had that year because it was just this joy of discovery all the time. It was like... It wasn't necessarily as much discovery as you'd have over a course of playing an entire season of Pandemic Legacy, but you got through all of it in about two hours, and it was almost as delightful, all in this tiny little inexpensive box. And so these are the kind of ideas that he's been playing with. How can I deal in a deck of cards with an sort of evolving game state and an evolving economic model, which brings us to 2020's FAM. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what, we, what one does in FAM? In FAM, you spend your time looking through an eight-page card glossary trying to parse out 60 unique different cards. Or you're wondering if you can re- rejuvenate the crocodile skin apparel market. But what you're actually doing is you're wondering when you should transition. You have these combos going and you have to figure out when they're going to run their course and you want to finish an administration turn and ditch that 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 old combo so it's on the bottom of your discard pile and start up your new combo so that when you get your cards back you get the new combo going it's this very interesting system and i can't wait to talk about it Fame is an interesting uh, licensed property from 2F Spiel. They apparently acquired the 24 license, and so you deployed Jack Bauer of the CTU, namely the Crocodile Terrorism Unit, to go strangle and waterboard a whole bunch of crocodiles so they can tell where the terrorist attack is going to happen. I wasn't expecting that, but you play this ca- these cards that's the Bauer on the top, and he goes and he kills a crocodile. It's, th- yeah, it's very think, strange. Think- Kiefer Sutherland isn't there, though. I guess they didn't have the right to his license. No, well, I think that's what they were going with, and they just forgot to change the card. Like That was the one card that made it through the printing before they lost the license. Oh, and that's why it says Bauer on the top and then yeah. Farmer below it, yeah. because they, they forgot to... Re- oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's how it, it certainly couldn't because, be because Bauer is German for farmer. Is no. It? No, okay. Impossible. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. Let's just quickly talk about how the game works. That way, when we talk about other stuff, people will sort of understand what we're trying to say. So there's going to be a, a sort of a draft of cards or a, a, a sort of like power grid style, which we'll talk about later, list of cards because they're all numbered. And then on your turn, you're going to be some playing some cards. and then Well, you're a card. Playing a card. And eventually you're going to have to do an administration turn. You get three cards back and you discard for free. And then after that, you're paying for cards. So you can see where you need to ditch the cards you don't want on the bottom. So you never need to buy them back and make sure the good ones are on the top. So it's this very interesting dynamic of when to play cards, how to play cards, when to introduce new cards into your hand, and when to do that turnover administration turn. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different way to encourage a sort of small deck strategy. Most deck builders, at the end of the day, do tend to encourage a small deck strategy. Uh, there are some exceptions, of course. In here, it's a little more organic in the sense that you don't have to rely on pumping the same cards over and over. But because when you administrate, you only get three of those cards back for free, you are encouraged to effectively have a, a, a small combo to work off each other. Now, whether that is... That's interesting in that you have to build that combo. It's a, it can be a little less interesting when you find yourself during a substantial stretch of the game, particularly in the middle or near the end, just doing the same thing over and over and over again. True. You might, you might say that. I was playing the solo game as well, and you might say, well, then why not just use the same three cards over and over again? Well, because there's a limited number of pieces, and sometimes the board gets... There's this interplay with the board that's fantastic. We'll get into later, but... Due to other circumstances, those three cards will not be useful anymore, and you need to like retire those and get new cards for a combo. There's absolutely an element of that, and uh, let me let me be perfectly clear. I liked Fam. I don't love Fam. I wanted it to force me to mix up my game a little bit more. Now there are a number of different ways I could have done this. 
component shortages do, in, of course, rear their head. You're going to run out of settlements. You're going to run out of workshops or whatever. And so suddenly that combo where you were constantly building workshops, you can't do anymore literally because there are no workshops to be had. I would have preferred if it had been a little bit more dynamic in response to other players' actions or perhaps even the consequences of players' actions making workshops, as an example, less remunerative and making me encouraged to go try to find a better way to pump my economic engine. There are moments like that, absolutely. I just wish there had been more of them. Yeah, I think that plays into a lot of points where... Uh, multiple plays by more people and block, you know, not so much blocking, but when you see people grab cards, grab cards so you can take the resources, so they won't get the resources they need. It's like, oh, they're going to score that a lot. Well, I'll make sure they don't get stoned anymore, stuff like that. And that also feeds into this, you know, how you teach the game because the game is dead simple. Like we said, you on your turn, you're going to play a card and then you do an administration turn and it's just that easy. But like I said, there are 69 cards in the deck. There are very few of them doubled, so it's about 65 unique different cards, and that's the whole game, and so you can't really go through the cards while you're teaching it, so the first play is going to be kind of a wash. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why the first play of FAM had me really intrigued and really had me started thinking about the past 10 years, well, five years especially, of Friedman Freeze playing with these different ideas, because the economy evolves. At the start of the game, you're just putting out farmers, and they're gathering a, tall, a small amount of resources. You're building roads, and you're putting out settlements. And then suddenly you're, building, you're putting out these new things, whether it's palaces or extensions or workshops or better roads or bridges or a dam, blah, blah, blah. And all these things keep coming in. And again, it's, it's all organic. It's not like, well, here's the 23 different kinds of things you can build and the menu of different recipes they have. And you can only build it once this phase triggered over. You know, the kind of thing that, not to pick on Martin Wallace, that a Martin Wallace game might have you do. It's like, okay, we're now in phase two. Now you can build dams. In phase one, you couldn't build dams before. It's just, when does the card show up? Well, that's how the economy evolves. And the economy, to be very clear, does evolve in interesting ways from game to game. The net net of it, though is that you get the cosmetic variety without a substantial strategic variety. Because at the end of the day, what FAM is, is another Euro game where you're converting resources to get points, which is fine. But whether you're trading in one stone and a wheat to build a vineyard for your three points, or whether you're turning in a stone and a fish to build a dam for your four points, or what have you, doesn't give me as much variety as I hoped. After the first play, I thought, if this game can provide me a substantial variety in how the economy develops by virtue of the rate at which the cards uh, the cards come in, this could be a really excellent instance of the genre. As it was, I thought it was solid. Yeah, that's what uh, a point I have down here is. I'm worried that we're with replete. I'm worried that with repeat plays, the cards will break down into like point values. Like as they come up, you'll say, well, there's only, you know, X number of cards left. This will, you know, bring me back X points. And then you just sort of like break the game down into not what you're doing, but just how many points you're going to work out of these cards. And, oh, that card's no good. It's not going to get, you know, it's only worth 0.5 cards for the last three turns and blah, blah, blah. And make no mistake, this is the kind of Euro where you do get to build your own engine. And that is pleasing. You have to be careful of what cards you buy, when you buy them. You have to worry about whether your resource supplies are well-rounded enough. You're going to find yourself short on some resources over the course of the game by virtue of the economic decisions you've made earlier on. And that's great. You get to see payoff. And again, this differs from game to game. One game, you have more grapes that you know what to do with. Another game, you can't get... uh, Another game, you can't even get rid of your stone. And that part's marvelous. It compares favorably to another game that we played about a year ago, Black Angel. Black Angel was similarly kind of a build-your-own-engine Euro, but to my mind, it never really came together in a satisfying enough way. FAM gives you the tools to craft your own point engine in a way that's very satisfying by the end of it. But again, once you craft that engine, you're going to be pumping that engine until circumstances force you to move on. And I wish that you, uh, perhaps something like Black Angel had done, had forced you to move on a little bit quicker than you necessarily would. But I do appreciate the fact that this is all coming, that this engine comes together as a result of my actions, not again as a result of some sort of artificial round structure. I love the fact, I love the interplay with the board as well that I talked about earlier. And the fact that you can lock people out of certain parts, you can lock yourself out of certain parts. 
by not only removing, because when you do an administration turn, you're pulling pieces off because you're filling these things up with workers and you can't place two workers in a spot. And then when you do an administration, you pull the workers back to sort of let other people use them. So if they're all used up, then you can't use the board or you can't get to wheat or grapes. And I found a lot in the solo game where you've buried your farmers because you thought you didn't need them anymore. And now you got to skip a bunch of turns to get back to the bottom of your deck so you can get money so you can pick up all your cards so you can break back into the wheat and start putting these workshops into wheat because you got to clear the crocodiles out just it's it's this weird interplay between the cards and the board that i thought was very pleasing that's my favorite part of the game honestly the way the workers work uh, that was that was terrible. So professional broadcasters, yeah, we that, should know that, better. Yeah, that's perfect. the way the workers function, the way the functionaries work. There you go. You see, just one one uh, one synonym, and you're good to go. So nominally, this is about sending out farmers or tradespeople or whatever to various sites in this area of ancient Egypt. Because parenthetically, we should stress everything old is new again. It's like the turn of the century. Ancient Egypt is in. <laughs> to Kenyu, Fayum, a number of Ancient Egypt games are coming back into vogue. It's like, nothing's changed. Ankh will be out soon. Ankh will be out soon. Ancient Egypt is once again hot. There you go. Think about that for a second. And the way the workers function, this is one of the only rules that is never violated by card play. You're only ever going to have one worker in a location. It doesn't matter whether they showed up at a workshop or showed up at a city or showed up in empty territory and the city sprung up underneath them. You only have one worker there. And when you administrate, you are encouraged to take back some number of workers. You don't have to, but you get money for doing it, and it's usually your interest to do this. And that part leads to, all by itself, a couple of things very organically. One of them is substantial player interaction. If I know that my economy does not rely on placing workers at cities, I'm never going to clear a city for you. I'm going to make you do that for yourself. I'm going to make sure that your your spots, the cards that I know you have, aren't going to work as well as they could otherwise. And secondly, it has follow-on effect for the economy. You're exactly right. The geography of the board is such that with a simple worker removal, you could starve the rest of the table of grapes for like three or four rounds if they don't know what they're doing. And so those decisions, which in the early game are just like, oh, whatever, I just want a couple dollars. By the mid-game, you start looking around and thinking, wow, I can have tremendous impact on the rest of the board state just by removing these workers. That part I thought was marvelously clever. And the other part that goes with the interaction is the fact that no one actually owns any of the buildings. It's all just anyone gets to use whatever is there as long as, like you said, as long as there's not a worker there. So you can sort of play off other combos if the right cards come up. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to you know, make it look like it's this great dynamic thing, but you can look at what people are doing. It's like, oh, he's putting a lot of settlements out. Well, then I'll get this thing that will get me tons of resources for putting workers into settlements. Stuff like that I thought worked really well. And that, I think, highlights what I hoped the game was going to be and wasn't. Because it just turned out not to be the sort of economy that I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be, as you said, a more dynamic, a more flexible economy where I would be encouraged to find shortcomings and then capitalize on them. I'm thinking, of course, of some of the the, the, the greats like Food Chain Magnate, which is all about pivoting to take advantage of economic shortcomings. I thought FAM might be a little bit more like that, but it wasn't. Even a very simple supply and demand mechanism like Navigador by Matt Gertz, where it's like, oh, my buddy over here is producing tons and tons of gold. I should make some gold refineries so every time she produces all the gold, I can refine it for mad stacks of cash. Something like Citadel Confluence, where you're inventing text to supply economic shortcomings. Or even something like Brass or Age of Industry, where there's some sort of... Anyway, I was hoping that there was going to be some more market elements there. And as I said, with respect to work, removal of workers, there's a little bit there. You do influence the economy. But again, mostly it's about finding that set of cards, some of which feed into each other in more obvious ways than I would like, to just pump them for points. And that undercuts the level of player interaction that I hoped was going to be, that undercuts the level of sophistication and variability in the economy that I hope was going to be there. And so, again, one of the reasons why I enjoy FAM, but it's not quite what I hoped it was going to be. All right, it's bad things. I think the unilingual cards made it borderline unplayable. Not that the game is unplayable, but the fact that we had to look into the book so many times, the fact that there was uh, the the card made it look as though you could do some things, but there was like just some you know short rule. It's like oh, you can do this and this, but not if you know these particular things were in order. And the fact that you'd have to do that 
every time you went back to the game because, you know, you'd have to remind yourself what are the exceptions to the symbology on the card. Yeah, we, we agreed that the cards were a little cleaner than they could have been. A, a couple more icons to indicate some things might have been helpful. And which which leads into two things. Number one, this is a... It made me feel like old fantasy flight games where there were two, two rule books, neither of them were complete. And so in playing the game, which leads to the second thing, every time a new card comes up, check the entry in the glossary. Read it in its com- to, to completeness. And this is not just for your first game. Do it for your second or third game too because there are subtle little details about how this thing works that can be very easy to forget. And I did find that a little more a little obnoxious, I agree. And some of that information could have been included on the cards, even while maintaining the fact that they were essentially multilingual. I feel it doesn't scale very well with, number, with player count, just because of the fact that you don't do anything. You just, you know, because you, and you still have to make it all the way through that deck. So more combos are available to more players, the less players you play with, and the game goes a lot longer, the less players you've got. Yeah, it's it's what uh, some people call a fixed fun game. There's going to be a certain number of turns to be had, and you just add more players, and that just means there are going to be more turns with fewer resources and fewer opportunities to make an engine. One of the things that I that I also didn't like about that was I, I didn't think that there was an easy player count in terms of manipulating the market of cards, because it can be very easy easily be the case that a card will come out on the flop and you look at it and say, oh, that'd be great. I want to get that card. And not through any conscious decision of anybody, just by virtue of the timing of people needing to administrate, that card could be gone in five seconds before it's your next turn. And so there wasn't really... So, so that element of the, the, the sort of power grid stacking of cards, which it borrows entirely from power grid, he said, uh, Friedman Free says as much in his rule book, that's fine, but it can literally be the case that a card comes up and you have no shot at it whatsoever. Yeah, I forgot to talk about that earlier. Is that you have to have this balance between your resources and money. You got to make sure they're both coming in, and you got to make sure you have some money in hand for, like, exactly like you said, if a card comes up suddenly and you don't have the money for it, then someone's going to take it on you, and you're going to be upset. That part I'm fine. Fine. If you're if you're running on low cash reserves, and a card comes up, and you try to get the money for it, but somebody buys it before you can get to it, I am absolutely okay with that. What I'm not okay with is a card comes up and. You think it looks nice, but the very next turn, someone just happens to administrate because they have to, and there goes the card. It's like, oh, okay, bye. Then, like I said, I played it solo a few times, and I thought it was just kind of odd. The The solo rules are dead simple. Uh, you just play it like you normally would, except when you're buying back cards. Uh, it gets more expensive. It gets more expensive. It's one, then $2, and $3, and so on. And you actually get to choose which cards. There's no discount on any of the cards, which I didn't talk. Well, I'll talk about that later. But... Uh, you get to choose which ones go away. So it's no problem. I'm playing the game, and it gives you like a point threshold that you get to, and then all these achievements. So I'm getting about halfway down the down the deck, and I've already surpassed the point the points that I need. And I said, well, okay, well, maybe there's achievements. So I see what you need. I said, okay, well, I've got almost all of these achievements already. Hmm. And this one here, I just acquired this card that will kill alligators. It's like put out three workers at a time. Walker, walker, walker. Crocodiles. Crocodile, sorry. That, you know, it says, Accuracy matters. It says finish the game with, with 10 or less crocodiles on the board, and I just grabbed a card that let you put out three workers at a time. I said, well, that's going to happen as well. It, it just didn't seem uh, very well, difficult. The, yeah, well, uh, setting aside the difficulty, I played it solo as well, and it really highlights the extent to which the economy functions by itself without a whole bunch of player interaction anyway. Again, it evolves slightly differently in every time, but it gets you to more or less the same place. And it just removes all the available pressures. There are no pressures left. And this would be true even if the point threshold were unachievably high. It's just you never feel any real pressure to do anything. So, I mean, it's fine. It's functional. It's functional, but it's very uh, resource pushy. Yes, I love the very simplistic look of it. A lot of people are saying, oh, it looks like a super old game, but I just really like that look. It's like nice blocky wood pieces, nice abstract looking. It just feels nice. I think it looks beautiful. Yes. I mean, I, I agree that the car, I agree with you that the cards needed to be a little more cluttered in terms of a little more information. I like the graphic design of the cards. It's very sort of, even I would say simplistic, sort of ev- evocative of the kind of bold line drawings that we associate with ancient empires, especially ancient Egypt. 
I liked the board design. I loved those chunky wooden pieces. It reminded me a lot of the Warfrog games right around the turn of the century where it was all wood and you just have these blocky wood pieces. Nothing hits the board that isn't a card or a piece of wood. There are no tokens anywhere, and it's pleasant to manipulate. It's nice to look at the board, and you see the sort of development of this previously uh, crocodile-ruled peninsula with nothing there except for, for monstrous death dinos. And then by the end of it, you have these lovely road networks and workshops everywhere. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very, very uh, texturally appealing. And then there's the fish. So in any of your, in your solo... <laughs> And then there's the fish. And then there's the fish. I've, I never got any fish, nor did I spend fish. Did, did you, in your solo game, did you end up getting fish? No, fish Fish is the one resource that you cannot get at the start of the game, and you seldom need it. There's a very small number of cards that need it. It was weird. The other thing was weird with these discount tokens. Mark didn't have a problem with them, but I just thought it was yet another thing that just didn't need to be there. It was like this fiddling back and forth, you know, uh, discount tokens on, discount tokens off. When you administrate... Back and forth. Some number of cards goes away, and any cards that were there and didn't go away become discounted. Yeah. And then next time someone administrates, they go away. But as I said, I liked the fact that there was that they were trying to, again, like Power Grid, have this notion of a stacked deck where the number of the card mattered. There was some notion of earlier cards and later cards, even though the entire deck was shuffled, where there would be some discounting function for cards that were not snatched up. But in practice, as I said, people were administrating... Not at a breakneck pace, but it just happened to have these these periods of intense deck churn. So you didn't really get that payoff. Yeah, and the other weird part, they say it's like Power Grid, but Power Grid, you know you're going to get those next cards next round. Yes. That is not the case in this game. 100%. You have, you have four cards within a market, then you have four other cards that are that you can see that might come in the market, but hardly ever do, because the cards that you're flipping more than likely are lower than those cards, and they're going to just go right into the market. And well, those four cards sit there for almost the entire game. They might sit there for most of the game, or... If the flop ends up being really weird, they could be gone by the time it's your next turn <laughs> based purely on what happens off the draw. And so I agree with you that the more that, that the way the fundamental deck and card composition elements worked made much more sense in Power Grid than they do in FAM. Now, again, the fact that some of these cards get burned out of the supply entirely does lead to the, the game developing in different ways. If you don't get some of those workshop cards coming out, well, then your game is going to look a lot different than if all the town developing cards don't come out. And that's cool. That does lead to varying end states. And again, it, it, it offers that kind of subtle influence over the economy that gives a veneer of variability that I nonetheless appreciated, even though it wasn't as substantial as I wanted. But when playing the game in the middle and you see that card that comes up and you really think it'll work for your engine, not having even the vaguest of shots at it because it just literally disappears through no input of your own, eh, a little wonky feeling. And then one minor thing is that I wish the board had been two-sided. I know they wanted to go for the historical thing, but like we said, the interplay with the map was so interesting. I thought it'd be really cool if they had like a, a like a weird, freaky map, and it would be it would lead to some very other interesting situations. Some cards that are definite upgrades to other cards, and I like the interplay where you have both of them in your hand, and you're desperately trying to get rid of this this crappy version of the action. <laughs> Well, but being able to do the same thing twice in a row. It is, but I'm just saying that this one's so much, you know, resource more efficient. <laughs> and you just don't want to play the other one because it's going to use up more resources than your right. other one. And one of the mechanisms is that you're going to get money based on how many cards that you have left. So if you've used all of your cards, you're going to get it's three minus the cards you have left in your hand. So you want to play all of your cards, but you want to play this crappy thing. So it's like Certainly stuck, not. it's stuck in your hand and you're desperately trying to. Get rid of it. Well, the game's uh, fame cycles cards in two ways. There's the global supply, which, as I've said, works kind of wonky and, and, and tends to churn cards either too slowly or not uh, uh, not slowly enough. Your personal deck churning is really well done. You want your bad cards to be played first so they can sit at the bottom so when you administrate you get the, the upper cards that are better. But that works against your natural impulses to play the cool thing first, but sometimes the timing doesn't work out. And managing your own little stack of cards, your, your hand-building element, the way it handles that, I thought was really cute. And that part I enjoyed, even though I was always systematically making the wrong decisions because I would always play my best cards first, which is not what you want to do in FAM. It is not. 
So to sum up, there's a lot I, I do actually really like about FAM. And for, you know, a 90-minute resource conversion euro, I would happily play it again. And that's not usually my bag. Usually when there's a re- when it's a resource conversion euro, I want there to be some substantial hook and or some more direct player interaction that will really carry it together. But the card management, as I've just said, is nice. The way that the economy superficially differs from one game to the next and the topography of the map represented therein, that's appealing as well. I want it to be a more dynamic, market-driven, reactive sort of game like you would see, again, in something like Food Chain Magnet or Navigador. That didn't materialize, and that was a source of disappointment. But nonetheless, I have to say that I thought that Fayum was solid. Yeah, I haven't seen any more content done on this game, so I'm not sure what people are saying, but I'm wondering if it's going to be compared to Terraforming Mars as well, because it's sort of this card play and uh, and transforming the map, and, and you know, once you're done, you have this very interesting-looking map, and you're sort of all working together to sort of function this map together, so I'm not sure if it's going to be like that, but it gives you that feel, and like I said, I love all the wooden pieces. You get wooden crocodiles, and they cover the map, and you get to systematically eradicate them for money, so that's always fun. Bam. <laughs> I I have to say, looking back on the work of Friedman Fries, I've never regretted time I've spent learning his games and seeing him play with ideas. He's just a fascinating designer. And Fame was no exception. Again, I wanted it to be something that it, that it wasn't. But watching him play with these ideas of how to offer variety and evolving game states just by using simple card mechanisms is a joy to watch. And I'm very much looking forward to his future output. And he's teased the possibility of expansions to Fame. And hey, when and if they come out, I would happily try them. Yeah, all the card numbers are even numbers. So he's got easily could knock out some more cards that would be interesting. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.